The complete sequence of the 1918 pandemic flu virus was first published in 2005. But the story of how we've come to understand the virus begins years ago in a remote Alaskan village and continues now in research across the country. What are we learning now about a virus that's taken many decades to comprehend? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. And our guest is Dr. James Crow, Jr., Professor of Microbiology and Immunology and Director of the Vanderbilt Program for Vaccine Sciences at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Dr. Crow is the senior author on research published in the journal Nature on the cultivation of antibodies from survivors of the 1918 influenza pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Crow. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Dr. Crow, would you just refresh our memories about the 1918 influenza pandemic? What was it all about? Well, we're all familiar with influenza that comes around every year, which people would term seasonal influenza. And when those influenzas infect a large number of people, typically in the United States, 30 or 40,000 deaths occur, and this would be termed an epidemic, an infection in the people by Latin. But every 30 or so years, there appeared to be larger spread of fatal influenza or serious influenza, which spreads throughout the entire world and affects all age populations. And these would be termed in Latin affecting all people or pandemics. And so the 1918 was the largest pandemic that we're aware of in history and was an unusual flu that killed millions of people. The exact number of people is not really known, but it's estimated to be somewhere between 20 and 50 million people died in a very short period of time. Was that because of the virility of the virus or the lack of medical care? Well, we don't really know exactly. There are a lot of thoughts on why so many deaths occurred. One thing that's clear is that the virus is actually a bird flu. It crossed over from birds into the human population. And therefore, no one in the world had really seen this virus before, and, and everyone was having their primary infection, or they were naive to the infection, and so there was no immunity. So that was one factor. The second is now that scientists have reconstructed the virus from archival and frozen tissues, scientists have been able to recreate the virus. We know if you put that virus in animals, it's very lethal. So the virus itself was a very dangerous virus. And then thirdly, recent studies have shown a lot of bacterial infections occurred after or during the infection and complicated the infection. And so many of the deaths probably occurred due to bacterial infection. Of course, there were no antibiotics at that time. Well, tell us about the research in terms of greater than a decade ago in a remote Alaskan village, uh, what you found, what you did, and how you did what you did. The viruses that have been resurrected have been published by uh, other groups, including my collaborators. And uh, the thought was to find tissue that contained the virus. And there are several places have been thought of in, in this regard. The military has collected tissues throughout the 20th century, and pathologists uh, led by Jeffrey Taubenberger at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology were able to find tissues of soldiers who died very rapidly during the 1918 pandemic. And it's very interesting because people who were housed together very densely died very rapidly, and of course the military was involved in World War I at the time, so there were a lot of deaths in the military 
It was an age group that was highly targeted by the virus. So Dr. Tallenberger found some tissues in the military archives, but only got pieces of the virus out. When we work with the virus in the lab, we usually freeze the virus in a deep freeze, negative 70 or negative 80 degrees Celsius, and people started thinking, well, where could you get frozen tissues? And there were historical accounts of native Alaskans who had died and been buried below the permafrost, and therefore their tissues were thought to have been frozen at the time very rapidly. And that turned out to be true, so scientists were able to recover lung tissue from Inuit persons who died rapidly and were able to get other pieces or much of the virus genetics out of that. And, and using those pieces, scientists, including Dr. Taubenberger and my collaborators at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, reconstructed the virus. And what about the antibodies that have been found in the survivors of that epidemic? Right. Well, this is the work that we've just published in September of 2008. I have developed in my lab with my coworkers technologies for generating antibodies from the blood of humans if we can get cells out and find the rare cell, the needle in the haystack that's floating around that specifies an antibody for any particular virus. And it's taken us 10 years to develop these technologies. I had actually visited with the scientists at Mount Sinai in New York as a visiting professor and talked about our work with other viruses making antibodies. And we sort of chatted, do you think it would be possible to make antibodies from survivors who are now 95, 100 years old. And my first reaction was absolutely not, because it's so technically difficult to make antibodies from human cells. It's hard enough already if you have someone who's been recently infected. But these people hadn't been in infected in 60 to 90 years with this type of flu virus. But we tried it, and it worked, to uh, all of our surprise. Were you pessimistic to begin with? I thought the idea was crazy to begin with because generally we think immunity only lasts for a number of years, maybe even a decade would be thought to be a fairly robust immune response. Now, it's certainly been reported that childhood smallpox immunization induces immunity that can still be detected. If you do a serologic test where you just take serum, you'll find antibodies there. But no one had ever dream that you could find the actual B cells floating around, and the cells are really the, the factories that would make the antibodies. So those cells were not expected to be floating around this far after the infection, and even I thought this, this really was a crazy idea, but it worked. And in fact, we did look at the numbers, and the numbers are on average about one in four million cells that are floating around in these people were to 1918. So I don't want to overstate the fact of the immunity. This is a rare cell that's flowing in these people, but still is present. Dr. Crow, many times we think about the longevity of immunity, such as tetanus, that you have to give the injection every five or ten years. How can these B cells still be able to produce antibodies after such a great length of time? Are they different than other cells? Well, we were able to clone out individual cells from these survivors. And because we were able to do so, we could actually obtain the genes in those cells that specified the antibodies. And by sequencing those genes, we learned a lot about the antibodies made by these people. And these antibody genes are very unusual in, their, in that they're highly mutated. So antibodies or antibody genes become mutated when you're exposed and then re-exposed to an antigen. This would be the idea of boosting. So getting more than one tetanus shot, you'll boost your immunity. And during that boosting, 
you actually can mutate your antibody genes. Well, the genes from these people were more mutated than almost anybody, any antibody we'd ever seen. So it suggests that these people were infected multiple times early in their life. And we suspect that people throughout their life retain memory for childhood exposures quite well. And it's actually as, as they become older, they become less capable of making new responses that are robust. And in a way, this is it's sort of a metaphor almost of their cognitive memory because people often remember their, their childhood memories very vividly, but they can't remember where they put the keys. And it seems to be the same way in the immune system in that these people have fantastic antibodies to things that they were exposed to multiple times during childhood in the early 20th century, and yet we know elderly don't make as, as robust an immune response to vaccines that we give them now. Now, are these responses what you refer to as mutated responses, amnestic responses, as we learned in medical school? Absolutely. These are B memory cells, and the sequences suggest that the memory cells have been actually re-stimulated a number of times early in their life. Now, if you took, theoretically, one of these survivors and infected them with this influenza virus, would their B cells be able to respond in therapeutic amounts of antibodies? Well, that's a great question, and the experiments that we've done so far obviously don't answer that. We haven't challenged individuals. The only way to know would be if a naturally occurring pandemic swept across the world and then look at to see what age individuals died in, in such a pandemic. As a surrogate for this, what we did was to produce the antibodies in large amounts, and then we, in a high-security, high-biocontainment lab at the CDC, our collaborator Terry Tumpy infected mice with the virulent reconstructed virus at doses that are lethal. It's a highly lethal virus, and then treated the mice with each of the antibodies individually 24 hours after to see if he could cure the mice. And, in fact, all of the antibodies that we isolated Individually, they'll cure the mouse. So the antibodies themselves are sufficient to be protective or curative, but whether or not the individuals would stimulate their B cells to make those antibodies in enough amount to protect them, which is really what you asked, we we really don't know that. But they basically have the antibodies there and they have the cells there. So we suspect that they would at least be partially, if not completely, protected. I'm curious, and I'm sure some of our readers are likewise curious, If you infected someone who is healthy today with one of these reconstructed viruses, what would you think would happen? Well, we expect that it would be just like the natural virus in 1918. It would be a a very virulent virus. Now, there are different types of influenza, and the, the types are based on laboratory tests directed at the proteins on the surface of the virus. So the 1918 virus is what is termed an H1N1 virus. And there are H1N1 viruses that are circulating today. In fact, one of the three vaccines that's in the annual vaccine that we all get, or certainly I hope all of our listeners as medical providers get an annual influenza vaccine, one of those components is an H1N1 virus. And so it's possible that there'd be some cross-reactivity of current immunity against the 1918 virus. But it seems unlikely because we... We screened serum that we got from individuals who were 40 and 50 and 60 and 70, 80, 90, and we really only see high levels of antibody that kill the 1918 virus in subjects who were 90 and above. So although there's theoretically 
the possibility that the current H1N1 vaccines or viruses would induce some cross-reactive immunity? Probably not. I want to thank our guest, Dr. James Crow, Jr. We've been discussing the resurrection of antibodies from survivors of the 1918 influenza pandemic. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. And thank you for listening.